Hey, Pills. Yo. Pretty sweet recent video on depression and sadness and unhappiness. It wasn't only on that. No, no, I know, I know. It was good. But you know what kind of grinds my gears these days with all the theory folk? What's that, Victor? It's, you know, I feel like there's just so much emphasis right now about unhappiness, the dooming. I feel like dooming is ubiquitous everywhere. And, you know, everyone wants to talk about how unhappy everyone is. Think pieces written about unhappiness and mental health, which obviously I'm not against. That's a good thing. But what about happiness? Uh, what is it like to be happiness? I feel like I'd like a think piece about somebody, you know, confessing about how happy they are. Or is that, I feel like being happy right now is out. It's kind of, it's so out that it's almost transgressive to be happy. You can't be happy if you're happy, right? You can't trust happy people. As Pharaoh Williams said. Do you hear that story about that woman singing? Because I'm happy. Yeah. Singing in the car. And then the recording just ends with... Woman was killed Thursday morning while posting selfies and driving. Her last words to her friends were, The happy song makes me happy. I think that describes happiness pretty well. Well, I do want to say that I've only ever encountered one person who claims to be relatively content in all of pop culture, uh, and that was Keith Richards. Uh, and when he was asked how it is that he's managed to live a long life, considering all his hedonistic habits, uh, his exact response was, most people don't fucking know how to use drugs properly. Uh, you have to balance everything out every single day. A little bit of uppers, a little bit of downers, but if you get the formula just right, that's the scientific way to go about achieving happiness. Maybe, Maybe let right. me actually tr try something out here. I, I, you know, we recently had a little bit of a, t of a Twitter debate back and forth about kind of an unrelated topic, but I think it's related a little bit because I wonder if a standpoint of like being, you know, critical theory has this tendency to undermine things. We, a long time ago, we read a, a, a paper from Latour about this, right? If you remember episode one, episode one. Yeah. And I feel like there's a parallel in like dooming and like I feel like critical theory or critical approaches that are undermining other theories are very consistent and <laughs> and uh, fit well with this the ubiquitousness yeah, of unhappiness. Yeah, do you remember that? It was a big news event. <laughs> okay, wait, we have to restart the conversation now. <laughs> Eric's not Eric's not even here. Hey, Eric. Hey. I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> oh god that's funny speaking of uh, drug use i'm really hungry <laughs> i just ordered pizza i didn't need lunch i didn't think i'd be doing this yeah yeah i know you forgot i'm not happy <laughs> okay welcome to pill pod 31 where we're very much not happy the laughter is the mask believe the mask anyway um we're here sort of as a co-release with my most recent video, which was more about depression. Mm -hmm. And Victor takes issue with it. Victor thinks that uh, being happy should be cool again. Make happy cool again. I think it's too, it's a little, it's very cool to be a doomer right now, I think. I don't know. Does anyone disagree with me? It's hard not to be. And that makes it like totally I mean, We uncool. have a whole... Everybody wants to be a doomer and cool. So, you know, the really cool thing is to be happy. Just fucking... Show up every day with a smile on your goddamn face and 
talk about why it is that pop music makes you, you know, just feel great. There's a there's a term for for what we do every morning. It's called doom scrolling when you just mainline a bunch of bad news. And I think that's what everybody's doing. How can you not be a, a doomer? Yeah. And I think it's operating under the assumption that uh, discontentedness is a choice. Well, have you, any of you ever read Ovid's Metamorphosis? There's a joke in that that I think is kind of germane here. Well, I have, but I don't remember the joke. I don't joke know if I've read the story like you're talking 800 about. 800 pages long. Yeah, it's long. Anyway, so um, I can't remember who it is. One of the gods asked, you know, who gets more uh, out of sex, uh, men or women? Uh, and the god says, men get more out of sex than women do. And then they're asked, well, why? That doesn't seem fair. And it's like, well, men enjoy sex 10 times more than women because men expect 10 times less of it than they do. And I think that that has some relevance when it comes to happiness, right? A lot of the people I know who are particular happy tend to have low expectations when it comes to mm. a lot of things, right? They don't go in thinking this is all got to be 100% great. Uh, you know, they get their McDonald's and it's warm and, you know, the French fries are relatively crispy and they're like, this is a fucking good day. Uh, whereas <laughs> a lot of people I know, particularly academics, intellectuals and artists, think that life needs to be a glorious, wonderful experiment that's going to have epic highs. And consequently, when most of life is too mundane, they get really disappointed and experience dramatic lows, usually a lot more dramatic lows than the epic highs. So presumably Matt's in the first camp there. Oh, no, I, I get discontented at everything. I always expect things to be like 150%. Okay. <laughs> Do you? Oh, yeah. I thought you were uh, calling me out. I felt called out. No, no, no. That's my paranoiac tendencies coming out. But the problem with these McDonald's fries that you bring up is perfect, is that they're so good, but only like the first 10 fries are good. I wonder if Eric is sitting there being like, oh, yeah, fucking fries. They progressively turn into worse and worse until like the end of the box. You might as well just throw it out. I get the same thing with potato chips. Well, I'm curious. Like, so what would you guys say your default state of mind is, you know, like like veering towards like more the the, the latter or the former of, of Matt's description? Well, I'm 100% the latter, but you've said before once on, on this podcast, Victor, that you don't get depressed. That's true. I, I will confess that I, I am a happy person, like by default. I'm contented. See, that uh, like sounds like also like depression is thought of as a mental disorder. That also sounds like a mental disorder. Not in a well, bad I mean, way. It's just like it's not what everybody else is like. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's true. Like that's that's maybe what I was kind of thinking about is I feel like there's a lot of... Uh, you know, modernity is, is leading to, I mean, I don't know who to blame for this, the growth and the phenomenon of what seems like dooming and unhappiness, but I really identify with exactly what uh, Matt, Matt was saying that, you know, I, I, I would say that I have pretty low expectations uh, <laughs> for, for things like, I, you know, I assume people are going to disappoint me. I yeah. assume. And like, you know, I mean, I feel like I'm good at appreciating. I don't know. But like, what would you say are, mo are moments that like, how can you guys identify like moments when you do feel like you're getting the satisfaction or, or like, I don't know. I mean, happiness is such a vague term anyway. Right. It's like, yeah, before we get there, can we say like depression, it has a clinical definition of course. Um, and it's not necessarily opposed to happiness either. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, if you've, if you've seen the video, I opposed it to like, a sense of vitality, it can be exhaustion, it could be sadness. So it's not necessarily just uh, 
happy versus depressed. Yeah. Because I'm not I'm not personally depressed, but I think I of dispositions, mm-hmm. of the four dispositions, um, I'm a melancholic. So depressive right. might be a better description than depressed. Right. I think that actually um Kierkegaard captured it best uh, and um highlight the difference by pointing to two nineties alt rock bands. Okay. <laughs> is one of them Nirvana? Yeah, one of them is gonna be, yeah. You oh, can also use go. throw joy division, right? Uh, but you know, unhappy people tend to be disappointed in the circumstances surrounding them. Uh, but the thing is that there's a kind of fix to that, right? Which is if you change the circumstances, then the root of their unhappiness is gone, and so things will be better, right? Uh, and that's the kind of attitude you see with the Smashing Pumpkins, right? Where Billy Corgan is just disappointed in the world around him. If he fixes things, uh, it'll be okay. Uh, the difference between that and depression or despair, right, uh, is for somebody who's really depressed or really despairing, the biggest central problem in their life is themselves, right? This mm-hmm. chronic feeling of disappointment in who they are. And the problem with that is there's no fix to it, right? Uh, you're always going to be you uh, unless you decide to end that, in which case, you know, you can put a stop to it. Uh, and you're going to follow yourself around wherever you go. And so you'll always be in the muck of your problems because uh, you'll carry them around with you wherever you happen to go, right? And that's exactly, you know, how Kirk Cobain felt, right? In a lot of his music, right? Uh, yep. Think about something like All Apologies, right? Really what he's apologizing for is being himself. There's just Melancholic is the depressed one. Is Which one is happiness? Is that Sanguine? Sanguine has like a, a pejorative quality to it, though. On the four humors scale, right? There's, there's Sanguine, Choleric, Melancholic, and uh, what's the fourth one? Phlegmatic. Hmm. Oh, phlegmatic. That's the fourth one. What does yeah. that? What, what does that even mean? You have too much, <laughs> too much phlegm. There's, there's <laughs> sanguine, happy, choleric, anger. What is sanguine? Like uh, sanguine means blood, right? It's so too it much like blood. Yeah, lustful? you're bursting at the seams with blood. Is it lustful <laughs> and violent? I think yeah, it's like something, or something overactive, hyper, maybe something like that my little graph says that's for gemini's libras and aquarius <laughs> i posted it to my instagram that's where the real root of happiness and unhappiness comes it's all set by the stars it's all connected the stars my fluids my moods yeah i mean i also kind of want to make a distinction too between you know because i think happiness itself is such an ambiguous category that I feel like encompasses like a lot of different states of being, because I think, you know, I'm sure all of you guys know this feeling, um, when you're like working towards something that you really like feel passionate about, but, but like a part of that process is you're, you're sort of suffering because you have to like put a lot of effort into it, but you also feel like most alive and most like meaningful with that work that you're doing that you have to overcome, which, you know, you can't be in that state all the time. And then there's maybe what I feel like my default is when I'm like not doing that, which is not like this, you know, state of bliss. Like, I don't think happiness is like, Ooh, like I'm feeling blissful all the time. It's just like a base level of contentment of like, you know, not being like, uh, not being predisposed towards like depression or self-loathing or like anger or like whatever those different kinds of things are. It's just like a base level, but it's not like this kind of pleasurable eruption. Right. I think, uh, so like, I don't know, there's like that baseline, but then there's also those moments of overcoming something, which I think Nietzsche is actually very good at describing vividly, right? The, like the, putting your soul into a work and overcoming something and like the adversity, which is both painful, uh, it can be painful anyway, but it's also uh, where you feel like the most meaningful states, I think, those creative kind of overcomings. 
Yeah, there's a couple different ways people talk about happiness, but one of them is not, well, one of them is just kind of an absence of negative affect. That's mm -hmm. sort of, that's sort of how health is sometimes defined. It's just like an absence of negative. Yeah, but uh, when, but happiness should be like a positive state, right? But then right. there's two other ways that we've mentioned today already is that happiness has something to do with balance. Happiness has something to do with like having order in your life. Yeah. It's like when, if you watch Dexter, that's always his thing is like compartmentalizing and keeping mm. things apart. And that's how he finds happiness is things stay separate from one another and he stays in control. And then the, the other kind way is, is the highs and the lows, right? Happiness requires contrast. It requires lows to be seen against, which kind of contradicts the idea of balance really because if there's highs and lows, then you're not really – there's not order there. Mm. Or maybe there is. That's interesting. I mean, it makes me think of like Greek definitions of happiness, right? Because I think the Greek, ancient Greek, def in ancient Greek philosophy, it's all about like the har harmony of your soul, right? Like Aristotelian, you have the virtues in, in correct order, right? You're not, there's like, in, for those who don't know, right? Like Aristotle's ethics are all about finding the mean between an excess and a defect of, of something. So I don't know, being like, like generosity is a virtue, uh, which is in between like being stingy and then being um, overly generous. And like the idea is all these different virtues, you have to find that balance and that harmony in between them. I do like that better. So I was gonna say, I think that Simone de Beauvoir is right in a Hegelian vein uh, in saying that the deepest kind of happiness we can get, because there's a lot of different kinds of happiness that we can have, right? I take a kind of immediate visceral pleasure from Cracking a cold beer, you know, uh, if that beer happens to be it might even be a tremendous sense uh, of personal gratification and pleasure. I'm you know, bleeping that out until they decide to sponsor us. You should reach out. <laughs> there, there <we> go. <laughs> but no, what de Beauvoir points out, and I think this is really thought relevant, is if you actually think about the happiest moments of your life and you ponder how many of them you were alone for, you'd probably come up with an extremely short list, right? Uh, whereas a lot of times the worst periods in our life uh, immediately, either immediately follow periods uh, where we are alone uh, or are when we are alone, or, or at least when we feel alone, right? Uh, and one of the things that you point out is this demonstrates to us how it is that we need to understand our moods intersubjectively, right? Here's my all branch uh, to the critics of liberal atomism from a couple of weeks ago, yeah, right? You, you reminded me of another version of happiness, and it's in the little things. Mm. That's the other one, right? People always talk about finding happiness in the little things, often like as part of some kind of hard-headed pragmatic rant about life sucking and you never getting that quarterback position or something, buy a fucking helmet, smoke a cigarette, find happiness in the little things, <laughs> orgasms, chocolate. But I do think that's good advice though. I mean, I usually criticize Jordan Peterson, but there was some truth to this idea that, you know, if you find gratitude for the small pleasures that you have in life and don't feel guilty about them, uh, that can help you get through things day by day, right? Uh, yeah. I think this can even have profound significance. So I was reading a memoir about a soldier uh, who was looking at his counterpart across the trenches, uh, smoking a cigarette, and he felt a profound moment of empathy with him because he was also a smoker, and he decided not to shoot him uh, because he thought it was rude uh, to shoot somebody who was enjoying a cigarette, right? Uh, but it's this kind of profoundly intersubjective moment uh, where the little things actually brought him back uh, to a sense of their shared humanity, right? And this is kind of what de Beauvoir is getting at, where she says, if you think about a lot of the ways that love uh, or Hegelian recognition, if you want to use it in the most profound sense, uh, is um, misunderstood, is that we see love as somebody caring for us um, 
unconditionally, right? Um, and she says, in its most sincere form, that can be really the source of a lot of our happiness because we feel like there's someone else who understands who we are and who believes uh, that that's something that's intrinsically important. Mm. Right? And it's hard to get a much more powerful feeling of gratification than that. Uh, she says, of course, though, that the downside to this is that uh, most of the sadness that we find in life come from warped iterations uh, of this desire for love, right? Uh, and she says, if you think about why it is that people end up in unhappy relationships, whether under patriarchy or otherwise, uh, is a lot of times what we interpret love as being is instead just demanding that someone do what we want, right? Uh, or provide us with a sense of affirmation whether they want to or not, right? Uh, and she says, if you think about it, that's not love, right? What that is is actually compelling someone uh, to do something that they don't want to do, uh, in which case you're never going to get the recognition that you really crave. Uh, or in circumstances where we feel really self-conscious relative to other people, kind of demanding that they give us something um, in order to make us feel better for, about ourselves, uh, that they're not in a position to give. Hmm. All right, so I've been writing this down, and I think anytime you say happiness generally comes from X, happiness generally comes from Y, mm -hmm. or it's negated by X or Y, a lot of this comes down to disposition. Mm. And I mean, I, myself, I would turn to psychoanal psychoanalysis to try to figure out what's my disposition versus what someone else's disposition is. But as we've been talking, I wrote down a few of these. Just um, kill your father. It doesn't matter. <laughs> no, marry I, our mothers. I, I mean, you, you say that as a joke, but it's it's very clear that one of the sources of negated happiness comes from law. And I don't mm. mean like the the government's law. I mean like the law of, of the father. <laughs> like mm -hmm. yeah. But we have, Victor mentioned earlier, happiness from accomplishment or like the struggle, overcoming something, accomplishing something. Um, I think that one accompanies the flip side of a previous episode we did on burnout because right. one one accomplishment that you strive for and you finish feels good uh it feels pleasurable but when there's like a mountain of of just tasks and not enough recognition which is what simone de beauvoir was talking about then then it becomes unhappiness or it becomes well it also burnout. has to be self-given right because the problem in the burnout society right was that <clears throat> the world is pushing all this like achievement subjectivity onto us, right? So I think really the kind of achievement that I'm thinking of, right, are those things where it really feels like you've, you've given yourself the, the um, and maybe it's hard to disentangle those two things, um, right? Like between what uh, what's actually like self-given, self-actualized versus... Um, Alienated. You know, yeah, it's, it's almost impossible to be disentangled. It's almost impossible, I suppose, if you want to be a strict kind of psychoanalytic uh, theorist about it, to disentangle between what was actually given to you and what is like the other's desire or whatever. But, well, um, even even what you're describing is something non-alienated, something that you undertake yourself, even if it's yeah. even if it's to appease, you know, some fiction in your head. But still, usually that produces some some sort of happiness. Then then there's sorry, I'm going to finish my list. We have negated from the outside, so then it's an environmental sort of depression, which we've talked about before. Um, happiness from balance. This is one I think it's really foreign to moderns today. Yeah. I don't. I don't think we really consider that. But I'm glad you brought it up. The Greek sensibility. It's like good. I think it's important. I'm, I'm glad you're bringing it up again because I think that that is a a real contrast. Um, I think that. 
this is one way where I will be like a strong critic of like liberal individualism. I think that it's true that our, our modern capitalist liberal society in its overemphasis on kind of uh, individual freedom doesn't, you know, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit awkward or it feels a bit strange to be like, yeah, you need to have these things balanced to be happy as opposed to, or like talking about concrete things uh, that you could be doing to harmonize your life because it just kind of goes against this idea that, well, you just need to find yourself and be whoever you're going to be. And it's like up to you, right? There's nothing, there's nothing concrete described. That shouldn't even be like a sub argument in the balance section. Capitalism and happiness gets its own fucking section of this, of this yeah. episode. Cause that's, what's fucking us all up. Who's happy. What is, what is happiness under capitalism? What has it done to it? Yeah. I, th I think though, like what, what Pill said earlier on, I think is really important, right? And we can interpret this from a Freudian standpoint uh, as kind of an excessively uh, stringent superego. Uh, but I'll try to use less terminologically overdetermined uh, words, right? Because uh, if you think about <laughs> why it is that a lot of people are unhappy, right? It kind of relates back to what I was saying before, right? This sense of depression you get uh, when you feel that. It's not just that you don't have what you want, it's that you are not good enough and you cannot be good enough and you never will be good enough because you're you and that's something that's polluted and bad, right? Matt is a Catholic, by the way, in case anyone was wondering. Yeah, it is. And so I can speak to this from experience, right? You know, because uh, you can have this sensibility uh, that sometimes can impose itself upon you that all your failures and all the bad things that happened to you ultimately had their seat in you. Uh, that it relates back to your personal failings and that consequently the best thing that, that could possibly happen for you is just to not be yourself any longer, right? Uh, and I do think that this comes from in the excessive imposition of all those little voices you were talking about that Freud called the superego, uh, just telling you that you're failing, it's your fault, and there's nothing that can be done about it because that's just who you are and it's what's bound to happen, right? Uh, and I think part of happiness in the sense that you're talking about is finding someone who helps take that away for a little while in the way that Simone de Beauvoir was talking about for provide, providing you with a sense of satisfaction and contentment with the person you are by rec by offering recognition. Yeah. I never I finished mean, I think... my list from earlier. Oh, but yeah, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no, recognition was the last one. So I, I, okay. I'm glad to be interrupted because each of them has its own relevant points. But isn't it crazy how how does Catholicism just fuck up people so bad for the rest of their lives? It has a it has <laughs> a unique the hand that rocks the cradle. It has a unique ability to do that. Could you elaborate on on, on why you say that? Catholic, as, as a total like non-Catholic and no, secular, I can, I can recognize just people who are raised Catholic just by the amount of guilt that they feel as as thirty year old adults still to this day. Really, it's so true, isn't it? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I mean, Freud used to have a used to say that the only people who are immune to psychoanalysis were Irish Catholics, right? And the reason was just it went so deep that there was no getting to it, right? It's just like we need fucking you know years and years to excavate all the layers of fucking shit that's been repressed here. Speaking of colonialism, <laughs> but what I, what I heard you saying, Matt, it's it's making me think of um, like you know, it's interesting how you want to how you want to locate um the source in other people, which I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I guess what I think is like the important part is like, you're absolutely right that you can like having someone else who loves you and who you love and you feel like that reciprocal uh, connection with could be an important way of doing that. But I guess like the key point, kind of like the functional point is that you're going to stop believing 
like taking so seriously those voices in your head. And it's like, whether it's a person who helps you do that or something else helps you, I agree that like there's a, there's another upshot to having reciprocal engagement with other people. But really what we're looking for is to eliminate or not take that voice in our head so seriously, right? That like can cause sort of like debilitating, you know, shame and debilitating judgment, self-judgment and self-loathing. And it's, you know, that's the mechanism Right. And so, but I agree that uh, other people can be a, a, a way of dealing with it. The psychoanalytic term for that is the consistency of the big other, trying to <laughs> break it down. But I think it also just has like a Ooh. kind of common sense quality to it. Right. I mean, and this uh, relates back to COVID. Right. If I think back at the best moments uh, of my life, right, uh, almost none of them were by myself. Right. Uh, there was maybe that one moment where I finished the StarCraft One campaign for the first time, and I smoked a big joint. So that that was kind of s- sublime in its own way. But that was that was only a big joint, right? Like the '90s, buddy. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. But you know, the, the point being, and this was in the early 2000s, there. But like <laughs> everything else, you know, involved other people in some way, shape, or form. Sometimes one person, um, oftentimes many people. You know what I mean? And I've been reflecting on this more during COVID, which is maybe why this de Beauvoirian notion attracts me. Uh, because in a certain sense, you know, um, we might be able to have our material needs cared for by, you know, uh, the state or because um, we have a job or what it happens to be. But a lot of people I know of speak about being very depressed in part because they miss that kind of connection. Right. Uh, and I'm hoping one of the lessons that we take from this whole crisis is precisely how dependent our sense of personal gratification and happiness is uh, on those around us. I don't know. Maybe then take people less for granted. Who knows? Yeah, no, that's that. that I, yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. For sure, that seems right. I'm also, th- you know, thinking about. Um, actually, my girlfriend and I have been reading this book uh, uh, at the Existentialist Cafe. Uh, it's like a Sarah Bakewell. It's like nice. It's nice to revisit existentialism a little bit. And one of the things that came up in that book was like the connection between Greek philosophy and existentialism as both being sort of like philosophies of self betterment in a way. Like the um, so, and I think it's kind of notable that existentialism is kind of out of vogue now. I think when you look at the history of sort of 20th century philosophy, you see um, existentialism emerge with Jean-Paul Sartre, Heidegger, and all these others, right? And the emphasis is on freedom. But, and then the connection back to Greek philosophy is specifically that came up in the part of the book I'm thinking of. It's like to Stoicism, which I think, uh, and there's some interesting contemporary philosophers right now who do work on Stoicism. And And a lot of shit ones also. Yeah, there are a lot of shit Stoicism ones, but there's some is interesting... making a very shit comeback. But if you sort no, but it, there, you know. I think there's some interesting. I think there's when it comes to like self betterment and like happiness. I think there's something worthwhile in Stoicism because like one of the points that they'd make is, you know, like yes, we have um, we can't really choose like how we, our initial like what other people do, what outside forces do to us, but we do have some power over how we decide to react to things, right? And like most of the damage that's done to our self-esteem when other people is usually um, when we keep thinking about how bad that was or like, oh, how embarrassing that was. It's like the the self, you know, perpetuating. And I think existentialism also, you know, has that big emphasis. I mean, I remember Sartre would always talk about it. It doesn't matter how, how bad things are. You could be in a Nazi prison, but you still have a choice to either like, like you know, shake the chains and scream or uh, or just like sit there uh, in in, uh, in a docile manner. And I, and I, and I wonder... And I think that what's interesting about the transition of philosophy from existentialism to kind of like post-structuralism, post-modernism is a transition towards kind of almost turning our back completely on freedom, right? It's everything is about the structure, you know, and like freedom, like 
there's one guy, Robert Solomon, an existentialist that I really that I really like. I used to, I listened to his lectures when I was a teenager about existentialism, and I remember he said, you know, I really like a lot of these new uh, post-structuralist philosophers, but I feel like it's it's opening up a whole new world of excuses in a certain sense for you know not not like and and kind of totally covering over that freedom. And it's worth mentioning that the name of those lectures was called No Excuses Existentialism. So it was like all about really emphasizing the freedom. And I think it's just interesting how now the discourse of critical philosophy, critical theory is such a strong emphasis on, you know, the structures of society and how much weight they impose on us. And, but then like freedom is gone in a way. Um, well, it's, it's interesting that you bring up existential freedom and stoicism in relation to happiness. Cause when I think of happiness and I just look at the word and I think about the word itself, it tends to mean something more connected to chance, right? When we say that was happy chance, a happy coincidence mm. or unhappy chance when something bad happens. And stoicism and existentialism are both very much about freedom from within, happiness from within, you know, holding yourself away from the vicissitudes of life and being happy no matter what happens, or at least, you know, when you're taught what existential freedom is, it's like you're free in any situation, no matter what, whether you're a slave or in any kind of situation, because you can always just kill yourself or take yourself out of that situation in some kind of radical way. And that's <laughs> kind of that existential freedom, which is a little bit, I don't know. But then today, and when I said capitalism and happiness, we're very much in the chance realm. It's all about fortuna. It's all about making big bucks that's what makes you happy money buys happiness and you have to be one of the lucky ones who gets born into wealth or else you're one of the unlucky unhappy 90 percent who just struggle every day to put food on the table fortuna yes but machiavelli always said that fortuna you have to take you have to grab it and and seize it when it comes oh with she's your a woman and you have to beat her into submission is that what he said about that that's great <laughs> he did great. say that actually oh, and what did uh bacon say about nature nature is a woman and we have to torture her to get her secrets out yes, of her yes the the sexism is problematic <laughs> but that's beside the point i mean there's the a huge is, sexist so element because what is happiness associated with it's associated with smiling we we look at unhappy people as ungrateful. That's always the right wing line, right? Is that they're ungrateful, you know, smile, babe. <laughs> and there's a huge sexist element to happiness in our society too. That's interesting. Yeah. And if you think of happiness as balance and our society seems out of balance in so many ways, how can it produce happy subjects? How can I be happy when there's such wealth disparity in the world, for example. Yeah, yeah. And this is why it says that maybe the whole notion of merit uh, needs to be not get thrown away, uh, but at least seriously questioned, right? Because it's not just that society is unfair and that generates a lot of happiness. He's, that absolutely does. And it's just that this whole notion that we have to have a competition for winners and losers uh, that produces winners and losers generates a tremendous amount of uh, unhappiness. I just yeah, wanted no, to say something okay. that speaks to like what Victor was saying earlier about existentialism, though, and actually kind of agrees with you in a certain way. Because uh, I think Eric is right that the problem with a lot of this be grateful, don't show resentment, uh, recognize sure. your freedom rhetoric, is it can very easily be appropriated for highly reactionary causes and has, yeah, right? Absolutely. Uh, I do think, though, that there is a certain amount of truth, uh, and Wendy Brown also points this out in her own uh, reflections on Nietzsche, right, to the contention that if you start to define yourself exclusively by all the things that oppress, depress, uh, and seem to get in your way, uh, then you're very quickly going to just be defined uh, by everything that's wrong in the world around you. 
right? Uh, exactly and you don't want to allow that to happen because, if anything, that allows the forces of oppression to win, right? Um, now, what the solution to that is, I'm not sure, right? Uh, but I think we can all imagine people who are like this. In fact, I know some of them, right? Yeah, uh, I know a lot of think, those. Yeah, everything is wrong with the world. Everything is bad. Uh, they can't do anything about it. Uh, so why even try? Right. Well, that's, I mean, you kind of took the words out of my mouth because that was exactly the point I wanted to make because I did want to be really clear here that I'm not like defending some naive, like, pure freedom individual. Wall, you losers. Like, like I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely not. But I, but I guess, you know, actually, I mean, it kind of connects to the balance point. I just feel like right now there's just such an emphasis, such a strong emphasis on like exactly like the Wendy Brown point on everything. We're being, we're a victim of everything around us, which there's a truth to it. But I think like thinking of ourselves like that also has a potentially deleterious effect on on our on ourselves yeah i mean i could think that the times in my life where i was most unhappy and i felt most hard done by right um sometimes i could get outraged by it and kind of strike back right but it was usually a point where i felt there's really just nothing i could do right um i wasn't gonna be able to overcome the problems that i was faced with so there was really no point in trying so i should just give up because the whole situation is just too shitty right yeah, and I mean, uh, and, and, and yeah, sorry. Well, I just want to also add, like, defend because I think also Sartre gets, um, I think he gets a bit straw man sometimes because I, like, I do think he, like, a big aspect is, you know, he never said that we have, like, radical freedom to do whatever. He's like, the situ, you can't control the situation that you're in. Like, capitalism is part of the situation, right? Like, the, the, the ideology, you know, like our, our psychology, all of that is part of our situation. But he still very much wants to defend that there's, like, a, a core. Uh, that that is still ours for the taking. That that we can we can do something with it. I want to question that chorus set because I think when you're defining it in this other or lack of recognition versus recognition sense of like I'm not getting the thing from the world that I need, that sounds a little bit alien to what I describe as probably more like dread, mm. which is an unhappiness just from existing. I. All right. Well, I don't want I don't want to get too anecdotal here, but uh, as a, as a more introverted person, when when whether or not I'm getting recognition from other people, there's also a sense of uh, a disposition that I have towards the world that's not that, and it's not precisely that the world's hostile, but more like the whole thing is profoundly indifferent, like the world itself is on the verge of of collapse. Like it's held together by this little bit of will. And in the future, it's already collapsed. That's the, the destiny of the world and the universe is to be nothing. But for now, there's some little bit of remaining force holding it together. We're not free. We can't hold it together. And this fleeting temporality, paradoxically, on the other hand, is what makes it special. But I don't I don't draw my sense of of uh unhappiness from saying capitalism's bad more than that like subtle feeling of dread that kind of underlies experience it's like yeah the, well it's it's funny because literally everything you said i agree with like i think that everything that you said is true but i just but think do not funny. feel like, that i don't know i don't like it doesn't i've some like i would say i would say the only time i really like feel that occasionally is like if I have a hard time sleeping or something, sometimes I'll like meditate on my own mortality and how I'm going to like, you know, one day I'm just going to be nothing yeah. like, like non-existent. And it's like, that gives me like a little moment of like a pit in my stomach, a little bit of dread. But overall, I just feel privileged to be alive and to get to experience at all. Uh, 
I, I'm just happy about that. Like that just, I'm just, so like in, well, in I this, wish in, that I had that escape because that first feeling is what kind of dominates any quiet moment. I think that's actually really important though, Victor. And like, I'll kind of build upon the Chartrian point you're making uh, with reference to a book by Eli Wiesel called Night, right? Uh, so Eli Wiesel um, was a Romanian Jew who ended up uh, being taken to Auschwitz. His whole family was killed. Uh, and then they were marched uh, back to Germany uh, where almost everyone else in the camp ended up perishing, right? Uh, and the book is amongst other things, a really profound rumination on what it means to be happy uh, in the face of like these kind of abyssal situations, right? Uh, and what you kind of notice is that there really is a kind of Sartrean flavor to some of this, uh, because of course these people were under a system of unbelievable oppression, and right? it's hard to imagine a much more oppressive situation, right? Uh, but people could still choose in that kind of situation to a certain degree, how they were going to respond to this, right? Whether they were going to continue to value their life and other people's life around them uh, by demonstrating small acts of kindness to others, right? Uh, or whether or not they were just going to take this kind of cynical attitude that nothing mattered, including themselves. Uh, the only thing that was important was kind of eking out one day uh, at a time, right? Oh my God, uh, we're on a slippery we're slope here. Well, it's a very difficult thing, and this is one of the point about night, right? Which is that there's a very thin line uh, between these two positions, right? Uh, but one of the things that Wiesel points out is that it's the people who still kind of felt that something mattered uh, and that chose to act upon that, that typically did better than the cynics, right? Uh, because the cynics, uh, as soon as, uh, you know, almost ironically, constantly talk about how something bad was going to happen. And then they felt affirmed by that when the worst did occur uh, and their whole world collapsed. Yeah, you, our, keep, our, you keep bringing this back to choice and decision. And I'm saying, yeah, like, what say. I'm describing, at least for myself, it's not a choice and it's not a conscious choice for sure it's a disposition you yeah, know like I, I that minimal happiness coming with it like uh, we can't can we get through an episode on happiness without saying oh, i'm just happy to be alive or i'm just thankful for my life <laughs> and then i can do at all you well, know what? I, there's already a word for that right. you know what it is it's called bear life that's the word for that <laughs> and it's not fucking happiness it's just existing <laughs> great i exist in my capitalist society and i am thankful for it that's called bear life it's not just, but I, I, I think that's that, not flourishing. I mean, I, I, that's I, I not a positive say. description of happiness. That's just like, well, at least you're not dead. But well, I mean, I, I would say that it's, it's. I mean, I w uh, that's not exactly the position I would hold about. It's more a reaction to that insight that Pills was talking about, like that dark insight about like the nothingness out there is like. It's not so much that I'm just happy to be alive, but in reaction to that, I guess my feeling is just like sweet and all that blackness. I got to be a blip of consciousness and like that, I don't know, that's like, it's not, that's not the only reason I'm happy. Obviously that's not like the thing that sustains my happiness, but that's specific to when I have those dread insights about like the nothingness and the blackness of existence. Well, I'd also don't want to be melodramatic and say like, I walk around life like this all the time, but you know, when, know, when things know. make start me thinking in cosmological terms, no, though. I mean, when, when I start getting excited about something then I just know it's like 10 hours away, I'm going to start feeling that other way pretty quick. But it's, 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 well, I want to, yeah. So one thing I want to say though, is, you know, in agreement with pills and, and, um, Eric is. Yeah, like I think emphasizing choice is, is potentially problematic, even though like I do think that there's something important about thinking about ourselves as, and even if it's not true, it's like maybe even a useful fiction. But the other thing it's like worth considering is like, you know, there is probably just a lot of luck. Like I'm probably just for some reason dispositionally contented and like, 
you know, that's not because of any choices I'm making, right? Like I'm not, I'm not making choices that like you guys or whatever aren't making. It's just, I just won the lottery for some reason. My parents, who knows the, like, who knows what it is, right? Like genetic parent, like, I don't know, but like, so yeah, like we have to consider that as definitely like a real possibility. I, I want to put it a somewhat different way, right? Because one of the people that really inspire me when it comes to a lot of these things is Eric Fromm, right? Uh, who also wrote in the context of Nazi Germany, right? And the way that he relates choice back to happiness is in this kind of artful way, right? Where he says, if you think about who people are, right? What makes them an individual is the decisions that they make, right? Uh, and if you're someone who takes joy in other people, uh, then you want them to be more of who they are, which means that you want them to have the freedom to make the kind of choices that they're going to make, right? Uh, and this is why real love is about understanding and empathizing with somebody uh, for who they are rather than who you want to be. Since, of course, if you don't care for them, unless they're who you want to be, you're taking that kind of choice away from them, right? Uh, but one of the things that he says exemplified Nazism uh, at its core was precisely this uh, terror uh, at freedom, right? Uh, which in turn leads to this belief that the fundamental problem with the world is that there are too many individuals making choices that I don't understand, don't like out there, uh, and I need total control over it. Uh, and one of the things that Fromm says is that this is only going to end up in a nihilistic kind of attitude that reveres death, because ultimately death is the ultimate form order can take, right? It's a world stripped of freedom, individuality, and the possibility for ever being disappointed, right? Uh, which is why it says eventually fascism is going to end with sending people to death camps. Uh, even though on the surface it seems like being about, uh, you know, nationalism and all this kind of stuff. And I really think that there's some truth to that, right? Which is why when Wiesel says, when you're in these kind of circumstances and you make a choice to be a good person in the very limited way that you can uh, to another person, uh, it's reflective of a very important point about happiness, which is that happiness comes from acknowledging the other and then to yourself uh, as someone who matters, right? Uh, as who they are, not as what you want them to be. Yeah, but what if it's not about the other? What if the universe is the other and the universe is a horrible dark god? <laughs> Xanadu is out there and just, oh no, I what's mean, his name? Cthulhu. I mean, Cthulhu's I just mean Hitler comes along just like any other government really does and when they're tapping into, I don't know if you can call it unhappiness or some kind of deep sadness and offering a scapegoat, offering a way out of some terrible situation. How about discontents? Yeah, the discontents of society. If, the, if, if that situation gets out of hand, then a little demagoguery is going to go a long way. And you're going to be able to convince people either to sign some kind of new deal or to help establish some kind of concentration camps. And it's, it's, I guess it makes the, the psychoanalytic lesson that you learn from watching something like Century of the Self is that, is that unhappiness makes people very pliable. And psychoanalysis right. in concert with things like advertising – and even just all kinds of like media and political messaging, propaganda and public relations, making people unhappy makes them pliable. That's a good, very important and it's, point. It's dangerous like when it gets out yeah. of hand. Yeah. Like we're seeing it now, even a lot of, di like a lot of people blame the rise of the right and Trumpism and stuff on people being, you know, essentially unhappy for lack of more yeah. words. But yeah, it, it's we should be skeptical of the happiness being offered to us all the time. That's if, if critical theory is about questioning everything, as Adorno says, 
then we should question, and what kinds of happiness are we closer to in our day-to-day -day lives than the shit we see in commercials, the stuff we're promised by the sort of market that we live in, the lifestyles that are modeled for us, and the, the ways we're, I guess, what they used to think of as the ways we're programmed to consume through attaching products to images and lifestyles and affects and affects like happiness or things like that. Like we as critical theorists or as doing a critical theory podcast, a skepticism towards happiness in a way it it's hard to be happy with that because is it the authentic thing or is it liquid happiness? Is it drug happy? Is it happy pills? I mean, you speak for yourself. As soon as I make, <laughs> as soon as I make 150 grand and get my cocaine and my fucking Lamborghini, it's all gonna be fucking uphill from there, baby. Yeah, or you get your swag and you're happy there too. Money, money can't buy me love, but it can sure make me fucking happy. <laughs> well, I just want to say to anyone out there who who faces the abyss and it stares at you and you feel hollow inside. The, honestly, the reason that I do read, like, enjoy, talk about philosophy is because it's the only thing that kind of answers that. And uh, specifically phenomenology, mm. at least for me, pay, yeah. paying attention uh, to yeah. how you pay attention. So, I, I mean, Matt, you keep bringing up like other and other people. And like for me, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure that's true so. for you because you're an extrovert and extremely social person. But for me it's kind of uh, more reminding myself that I'm in the world, that the world is uh, appearing to me and the fact that it's appearing to me in time, that it's not appearing elsewhere, that I can have awareness of the fact that it appears to me. Even paying attention to that in kind of a form of godless meditation, that kind of brings me back to, oh yeah, I'm in a body, okay, like I'm not in the dread, I don't have to think about the creeping, fungal approach of doom uh and yeah that like phenomenology is form is a form of meditation in my mind specifically merlu ponty the flesh anyone uh been on my patreon they know that how much i like that book well i'm gonna respond to that by saying that uh, i would actually kind of reorient a little bit by saying uh, i'm actually a very introverted person in a lot of ways right but this and this is one of the reasons I actually found phenomenology and in particular Heidegger extremely entrancing when I was younger, precisely because there is this kind of capacity that you find in his work to find meaning in your individuated projects uh, that orient you toward authenticity and self-creation, right? But what I've kind of experienced by trying to figure out how to live that in practice is that I think Hegel was actually more right than these people, right? That introspection on the conditions of your own understanding and the conditions for your own possibilities will never bring you any kind of real gratification, right? Uh, that can only come from finding meaning in something that's external to yourself that seems more important than you and what it is that you're doing. Uh, and I think some people find that in God, and that's fine. Uh, as a, from a secular standpoint, I think we have to find that in other people, or if you want, you know, other sentient beings uh, to kind of see the point to Eric uh, when it comes to things like, uh, you know, animals and uh, other conscious entities. So we're, we're kind yeah. of admitting that we all just use philosophy for cope, I guess. Oh, fuck yeah. 
I mean, <laughs> what did Nietzsche said, right? Yeah. Every philosopher creates a philosophy that deals with his or her problems, right? It's all kind of psychotherapy. Yeah, or it's a, it's a biography. Yeah. It's a biography of yourself. Uh, yeah, it's funny, you know, I kind of want to also respond to, to Matt because, you know, I, I actually, I mean, I do identify with the importance of other people, but at the same time, like my own experience, and I don't know if this is going to like sound dickish or something, but like, I would say that like the only times I'm like unhappy are because of other people. <laughs> like, like, like I would say that like, like, you know, I'm, I very much identify with Sartre's, you know, but like point hell is other people. Like, like I feel like, um, I just don't, uh, I like when I'm alone, I, I'm, I'm always like pretty much at a base level of contentment. Um, and like can entertain myself or I don't know, like what I don't, I feel like I don't really get bored that much. And the end, like, but yeah, it's funny. Like, obviously other people like end up enriching. They almost act as a platform for when I'm by myself, I can feel better because I like get enriched by being around other people. But, um, but yeah, I don't, I, I actually, and I, pl and I, for the record, I have plenty of very good memories of by myself. I was going to say I, that, that too. I, do, uh, I was like, I don't want to be the only one to say. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I have plenty but, of good that's memories. That's fair. I mean, I, I'm just speaking from my own experiences. And reflections, right? I mean, if you experience differently, that's fine. Yeah. But I do want to say, I think that de Beauvoir and Hegel and Fromm kind of all acknowledge this, right? Which is that there's a weird situation where other people and the kind of externalization of meaning that we find in them is simultaneously the source of both our greatest happiness and, of course, our profound disappointment, right? Uh, because other people are the only thing that I think that can give you true contentment. But that also means that they're the only thing that can really disappoint you, right? Uh, and when it comes to those little voices and guilt that uh, people feel that really can make them depressed, right? Uh, a lot of that stems initially from the sense that the things that you care about outside are being let down by you, right? You're failing in some ways. Uh, and that's the quickest route to sort of thinking, to start thinking that you're just not good enough. The problem lies with you and uh, there's just no way of resolving it, right? And I think you can also see this best expressed and Beauvoir writes really artfully in this in romantic relationships, right? Uh, the best and worst relationships that we have are typically with our romantic partner uh, because she or he is the one that can provide you with real recognition and acknowledge who you are. Uh, and they're also the person that can essentially take everything that you are away, right? Uh, by forcing you to be someone that you're not. On the, on the, along the line of the, the sort of Lovecraftian void and staring into the abyss and sort of naming this fundamental negative... I don't know, tendency inside of people. There's a whole sort of aesthetic like subcultures that seem to find happiness in sadness, finding happiness in melancholy. And, you know, you think of like the Gothic sensibilities, right? Of all the way from Gothic novels of the past to horror movies today to the sort of Gothic movement and people who enjoy that sort of aesthetic finding the happiness and the gross things or the icky things or the melancholic things. I mean, that's like going full contradiction there. Now it's not even like happiness is avoiding suffering. Oh no, there's happiness, but it has to come with suffering. Oh, now there's happiness in suffering. Suffering is a kind of happiness or at least the aesthetic quality of it insofar as it defines these genres and subcultures. It's, there's a happiness, even uh What's uh, Nirvana? They sing, I miss the comfort in being sad and things like that all the time. It's like depression is a source of comfort for people in many ways. Yeah, well, which it makes me think that happiness is like the wrong word sometimes. That, like, yeah. you know, like it's for, like maybe fulfillment would be like a more uh, apt term to use for some of these examples you're bringing up. 
And it's, again, it's the society that encourages chasing your dreams and chasing happiness that has more suicides than any other culture. Right. Ex- well, ex- so. well, that's exactly my point about like the word happiness. Like, I don't think that we're aiming. I mean, because because if you if you equate happiness with like that kind of capitalist, like you know, modern dream, then yeah, like I don't I don't think that that's um, that's definitely not what I'm talking about when I think about uh, happiness or fulfillment or whatever. But um, I want to say also just related to this that. Um, Pills made a video about David Foster Wallace. Uh, and I mean, he pointed out really accurately that starting in the 1990s, there was a real industry and a commodification of sadness that started to emerge and that very quickly vulgarized it, right? Uh, you know, and he said, you know, in one very chilling interview, since he did end up taking his own life, uh, that people are now starting to realize that suicide can be a good career move, right? Uh, because huh. you can become an icon. You know, you can become the next Kirk Cobain or Ian Curtis or Mark Fisher, Right. Uh, by having these legions of sad people line up to listen and absorb what you're doing because uh, they think it's going to reveal some trend, some transcendent truth. Uh, when the sad reality, of course, is that a lot of people who end up taking their own life feel exactly that they're the last person uh, that anybody should be listening to because they're just not good enough. Um, and Mark Fisher also wrote about this very eloquently in his book on hauntology uh, and depression, right? Um, that the kind of problem with the commodification uh, of sadness is that it takes the very last dignity from depression uh, away from you, right? Uh, since now you can't be sure that you're not just performing depression as some kind of career move, right? Uh, if you're a well-known enough figure. And I, that's really gotta be a crappy feeling, right? To know that if I feel sad, it might just be because I'm kind of projecting this desire to appear upset to other people uh, so that they'll be attracted to me and find something profound in what I'm doing. Right? You're bringing up an important point, I think, because um one observation that we might make between like sort of modern versus ancient conceptions of happiness, right. Is like, you know, Aristotle used that word eudaimonia to talk about happiness and is like basically meant like beautiful life. Like there's like an, it's like this person is living a beautiful life. And it's like, you know, and I think to some extent the Greeks looked at, looked up to people who were living this beautiful life. It's like, that's like much more of a Greek value. But nowadays, I feel like the people we look up to, right, the figures that we're like, look, is like this heroic person who's actually miserable, like this heroic artist who's going through all this suffering, like. And so, guilty so charge. Like, I mean, I, I revered a lot of those people. Like I fucking like wore out my Nirvana records just like. And fucking... nobody, no, nobody, nobody really like looks up culturally. Like I would say like culturally right now. Like someone who's living like some people where you're like, man, that guy's got it together. Like he's, you know, he's living a balanced life or that girl's living like this beautiful life. Like that has no currency, I feel like, like today. Uh, no, to extent, like I, think, I think the people that admire David Foster Wallace are far fewer in number than the people that admire Jake Paul. But do you think that people actually think that Jake Paul is living a beautiful life? Like, I don't think that that's what they admire about him. It doesn't matter. It's the fantasy that matters. I don't even know who Jake Paul is. I think, is he the boxing one or the other one? He's the boxing one, I think. Yeah. Happiness is fantasy. I got to say, inject into your uh, intervention into Greeks. Achilles was emo as fuck. That's first true, of all, that's true. That's true, he's yeah. beating his breast and whining and crying. And he's crying until Hector will come out and fight him. Um, but B, I think even the the valorization of off i think we would call it this a uh, kind of a cult of authenticity sort of fisher yeah. foster wallace kurt cobain they're more authentic because they actually like yeah. did the deed you know um yeah. i think that i think that might come more from recognition almost like the person who has off themselves recognizes 
what you right. feel. Right. That's true. Yeah. Mark Fisher put it really, really de- depressingly where he said, you become like in this really despairing way. And can't remember what essay he said, where he was like, if you become a popular enough person, you start to realize that there are some people who want you to commit suicide to prove to them that you were really sad. Right. Like <laughs> I'm your fan. Show me that you really meant it. Right. Uh, Cause that way I can continue to revere you. And that's a really fucking perverse thing to yeah. imagine. Right. I'm, I'm not sure. sure if this was just in his head uh, you know, as a result of like kind of imbibing this culture. But the fact that somebody could reach that conclusion is really telling uh, about the kind of weird fetishization of sadness uh, that Victor was talking about. Right? Mm. I'd just like to point out, I think we're at the point now where we have said the big S word enough times that we're going to probably have to put a proviso at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> and so it's going to be like, PillPod, episode on happiness. Warning, we discuss suicide quite often. <laughs> it's gonna, people are going to look at that and be like, what the fuck is happening on this hey, podcast? Hey, you were the only one who said the word. Now we can't put it on YouTube. Don't you remember what Jizek said? Jizek had this funny thing in his recent book where he's like, Sometimes people take a great satisfaction out of the fact that they can commit suicide, right? Um, fucking, what did he say? Is like, you know, you sit there and you think, oh man, I got a lot of problems in my life. I got to pay my taxes. My life is going to leave me. Nope. <laughs> Just going to fucking opt out, right? Well, it's funny. Didn't Zizek say that um, for him, uh, you know, he wanted, yeah, he, he wanted to commit suicide, but then he realized he had to like finish his book or something. What was that about? Or? Oh no, his psychoanalyst was like, well, you already paid for your next session, so you might oh, as well that's wait till next was. week. And he's like, Oh, fine. And then, you know, the psychoanalyst was like, well, you've already paid for the next session. So, yeah. and you know, it's usually put it in his inimitable way because he was like, it wasn't just that he didn't want to lose his money. It's just like, well, I'm not going to let you fucking cheat me, you bastard. You know, you don't get a fucking free session out of me. So I'll be here. Well, let's try to t- steer the discussion away from that because it's not like we're valorizing it. We're commenting on the valorization of it yeah i know exactly um and i never know Kurt, i never knew kurt cobain said that because that's kind of a, a a dark comment that is dark i wonder that that but sounds t- like something that he was uh over indexing or over overrating the uh consistency of the other in that case oh you mean is uh, nope. i miss the comfort of being sad quote no that that oh, he, yeah. that his fans presumably want him to you know, do- oh, no, that was Mark Fisher oh, uh, who wrote that. Okay. Oh, that was Mark. But Pills, you know, I think you actually like kind of touched on something important when you were mentioning the the contrast between, like you mentioned Jake Paul. And this connects to some of your earlier videos and, and commentary about like social media, you know, and I, th- and I wonder whether like, and, and then you said authenticity. And I think that's such an important connective point because perhaps what's really valorized today, right? Because there's like a bifurcation of cultural currency Right, like the social media, the image, this like happy capitalist life with like, you know, sunshine and poolside drinks and like, you know, attractive people. Yeah. Like that's the that's like the that's that that's like yeah, Wolf of Wall Street, right? That's like one image. And then and then there's the reaction to that image, which is the valorization of the authentic, which is actually to be miserable about like how stupid all the shit is. Yeah, but offering yourself's the one thing you can't fake. That has to be. <laughs> okay. It's like the the one authentic action that's guaranteed. So that's what you meant by that's what you meant by authentic. I, guess I was actually that, thinking yeah. about it in a broader in a broader sense that just. Well, yeah, broaden it. We want to get away from that. Yeah, I mean, again. so like, I mean, when I say broaden it, is I mean like, you know, people who are not like not actually like doing like doing the act of of offering themselves, but you know, just certain artistic types who are like suffering for their craft and are miserable with the conditions, there's an authenticity to them 
that I think is a reaction, an appropriate reaction to that like hyper real image of like social media. So to, and then, but like, but what doesn't exist and I still will hold by that contention is the valorization of like that beautiful life that like, you know, Aristotle talked about, like that's, that's nowhere to be found. I think the reason it's so we have to be careful about valorizing things like that because it's like anything else, right? You can build up an image of something. It's like, like think about how they recruited people to go to war, for example, in like the first or second world war, like they present it as this like beautiful thing and this achievement and you're so manly and self-possessed for being able to do it. But the problem is it's not really about the individuals who join up because they're not the ones who are going to be there afterwards to experience those feelings. They're going to be the ones who don't make it back. They're going to be the ones with some kind of irreversible condition afterward and they won't be able to enjoy it. So valorizing it is a very ethically unsound thing to do valorizing what well i'm 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 trying to use going away to war as a metaphor for suicide but uh, oh okay blew it up yeah i I was trying to get away from that but okay i I think this is an important discussion though because i mean when we're trying to ask you know what does it mean to be happy we really do have to interrogate why it is that our culture or at least significant elements of our culture seem fixated uh, on sadness and depression uh, and even try to valorize it right because that's a telling indicator that something is wrong right uh, I mean, if you want a really warped example of this, and I've got lots of them, uh, David Foster Wallace, near the end of his life, said that one of the things that he felt pressure to do uh, was say that he did heroin, uh, because even though he was an alcoholic, he understood that some kinds of addiction were more sexy, as he put it, right, uh, to the kind of audience that was going to read a 1,500-page book like Infinite Jest, right, uh, which is true, I should say. Um, but, you know, I think that there's deep roots to this kind of cultural malaise, though, uh, that go beyond just postmodernity uh, or late modernity, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the kind of earliest instance of this kind of fixation on sadness and its valorization uh, was actually with uh, Goethe's novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther. Um, so, The Sorrows of Young Werther by Goethe is a novel about a young guy. He doesn't able, he's not able to get the girl that he wants, even though he pursues her for a very long period of time. Uh, and then he kills himself at the end, uh, except it's really sad because he tries to kill himself in this grand, histo- like heroic way to kind of show her that he really cares. Uh, but instead he fucks up and he ends up dying and suffering for several days before he passes away. And everyone thinks it's just kind of sad. Did anyone hear and me Goethe try actually- to get away from this topic? Did everyone hear that? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to yeah. get that, right? And then, but Goethe actually wrote complaining that he got novel, he got fan mail from people saying that they were like Werther and they were going to kill themselves like Werther and that this was a heroic thing. And Goethe was writing back to them being like, no, do you not get the fucking point of this novel, which is that this is not something to do, right? Uh, It's the sorrows of Werther for a reason, right? Uh, And I think that one of the ways that we need to get away from this uh, and to move away from the valorization of sadness is by recognizing that this is supposed to serve a therapeutic function in allowing you to better understand and cope with your own problems and then also not and then also overcome them. Right? I think a lot of people can use this material uh, as a chance not to overcome their problems, but just to continuously find their way back to them. I mean, right? It's no coincidence that at the mention of authenticity, we dive right back to the romantic era because that's where yeah. all the oh, ideas absolutely. about authenticity and creative genius and the 
the mm. individual creating something from nothing is the sort of art. But that's that's also where the valorization of what you said, sadness, suffering comes from, right? Like um, like a, you think about Byron's sonnets too. They're all about suffering and tortured people, but that's, that's the source of genius. And I do enjoy watching things, like I said earlier, Adam Curtis and people with a kind of negative vision of society or something that makes it think that comes from a place that's a sort of tortured place or a depressed place. And then, and then that just goes to show again, the sort of weird intrinsic relationship between suffering and happiness and our sorts of aesthetic sensibilities. Well, we've got here and, uh, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Camus who said this was the only, the only serious philosophical problem, but I, I think I was the one actually who said this first valorization of uh, sadness. And I really honestly don't think it's a valorization in the people, in most people, at least as far as my empathy it's goes. Not, it's, maybe, it's much more it's maybe not a sense right of catharsis. Because you know, mm. at least, like if, if loneliness is the worst thing that you can experience, then knowing that whatever, Kurt Cobain felt it or David Foster Wallace felt it, in that recognition of them, there's a recognition that comes back at you that you see. I'm. It's not that they're valorizing the act itself. I, I don't think. Maybe some people do that. I'm not sure. No, no. Uh, I, I agree. I, I agree. Exactly right. I, I kind of wanted to say that I think um, that's sort of why I was using the term cultural currency because because I think there's a catharsis part, but I think there's a step further too that there's a certain aesthetic or a cool aesthetic to people who are perceived to have like artistic genius who are also suffering for their crime. It's not a valorization, but I think there's, there's cultural currency. There's, there's a, there's a, there's like, Oh, this guy's authentic. Like, you know, I, I feel that too. That's the catharsis part of it too. And it's like, but they also, you know, the goth aesthetic is like an example. There's like something that has cultural currency in some as being in contrast to like the sunshine lollipops of like, you know, Wolf of Wall Street douchebags, right? Uh, like the the show Friends. Fuck that show. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, but I, I think that uh, Pills is exactly right. And again, I think that Goethe found the right way to deal with this a long time ago, which is to use these kinds of forms of artistic expression as a way of helping people achieve catharsis uh, rather than holding them up as something to be valorized or commodified, right? Or to emulate. Uh, you know, Goethe was an extraordinarily smart guy. Einstein used to say that he was probably the smartest man in human history. But he wrote a letter to a fan who really liked Werther, and he said, look, you know, I have felt everything that appears in this book. That's why I wrote it. Uh, but I am not Werther. You know, I'm Goethe, and I went on and led a successful life, and I do this, and I have my interests, and I'm writing my book on color. You should do that too, right? Find something that brings you a bit of contentment, right? Uh, and... I think there's a lot of practical wisdom in this, right? Use this in a Wittgensteinian sense as a ladder to help your way through your depression um, by realizing that other people feel the same thing uh, and then try to overcome it, right? Uh, don't fall into the kind of trap of thinking that this is something that you should want for yourself or something that you should stick with, right? Because uh, it's sexier in some way. Here's redemption through art, which is also a common theme currently but also in as eric was saying the romantic age yeah christian mm -hmm. art in general you get to see jesus suffering and he looks all bloody and like the mm. sadder he looks the better because the more religious people are going to be after they see how sad and suffering he is for you yeah it's so great i love christian art 
I should say the, <laughs> the culture industry plays a role in this also, I think, because um, if you think about like a standard biopic that a lot of people take as another kind of pop expectation for what great art should be. A lot of these biopics have the form of kind of what, you know, Victor and Eric and Pills were talking about, you know. There's a great genius, probably played by Benedict Cumberbatch or, Cumberbatch or Russell Crowe. Uh, he <laughs> suffers from an awful lot of problems, but that's part and parcel of why he's a genius, right? No one can understand them. Uh, and then at the end of the movie, they go on to win a Nobel Prize or Venture Computer or something, uh, even though they've suffered an awful lot, right? They have the scene with the gun next to them. They have the scene with the knife next to them but they choose to press through. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, this has a lot of currency even in our highly meritocratic competitive society uh, where we're told to emulate people who've accomplished something that's really great and not take satisfaction in the small achievements that we've had in our own life. No, that's that's like a, that's a high road to nationalism right there, taking credit for other people's achievements. <laughs> yes, that's true. I, I, I was also, I mean, curious to... Uh, about do you guys think um that nowadays there is a propensity to, towards like displacing um on like the, the sources of unhappiness onto like societal or structural reasons because i think i see that temptation all the time and like the reason i use the sort of psychoanalytic displacement is because i just wonder whether you know thinking about the people who stormed the capital or whatever who got angry or or whatever whatever like unhappy people it's like that seems like an eruption in something like looking outwards rather than inwards to like i don't know really like what like what was your relationship with your parents like like i don't know i just wonder if that's worth considering in an age of of like um of unhappiness and the discourse about it always being you know, like the horribleness of if you're a right winger, right? Like, you know, socialism, Obama, like whatever, like boogeyman and like on the right, it's like capitalism. And I'm not saying these things don't have an effect on our happiness, but I'm just saying, I wonder if there's a bit of a temptation towards that story because it, it allows us to not look inwards. Yeah. I well, mean, the reason why I'm unhappy is because feminism, that's why I can't get laid. Ergo, you know, yeah, it must be it's yeah. a sticky question because what the when you phrase it, like, do you think people project it onto the structures? It's like, yes, the structures are making you unhappy. It's not that's not the question. The question is, which symbol do you choose to smash yeah. because you're unhappy? I that's think that's exactly it, right. The most visible fucking thing. When something wrong happens, you go to the store and you yell at the fucking person in there. That's what you do. They didn't have anything to do with the rule that upset you. But <laughs> But you fucking lay into them because it makes <laughs> you feel better. <laughs> so that, that more on point, we can go to uh, Nietzsche, and Nietzsche's you have like either an active force or a pa or a ne negative force, and the negative force is resentment, and the positive force is creation. So at the end of the day, I think if you're upset at the structures around you, which you should be, yeah. by the way, according to a lot of the people we've talked about, Fisher and and Burnout Society and all that then yeah, you, ha you have the choice at the end of the day to cast that blame on the thing that you think deserves it or to try to make your way out of it. And uh, referencing my own work one more time, but Kristeva comes out exactly on the same point as Nietzsche on this. Like if you wanna, if you wanna cathartize, cathartize? I don't know what that verb is. If you wanna cathartize yourself out of it, try to make your way out of it instead of, you know, uh, negating. Yeah, I, I want to say I completely agree with what Eric said, and I think that this is where it gets really tricky, right? Because on the one hand, you know, it can be very tempting to depoliticize the sources of our unhappiness, which is what a lot of reactionaries do, right? Which is to say, 
Don't project blame onto contemporary institutions for what's going on with your life or why you aren't happy. Look inward, right? Uh, pick yourself up uh, and change your life. You can do it, right? Uh, and I think that's a really dangerous thing to say. Uh, and it's also wrong, right? A lot of times the reason people are unhappy does have its root in, in unjust social structures, right? Uh, where I do think that, you know, um, it becomes problematic though is what people choose to locate as the source uh, for their unhappiness, right? Uh, if they're choosing to locate the source of their unhappiness in things that genuinely are unjust and problematic, uh, that's fine. You know, those energies are channeled in the right place. And I think everything from like the civil rights movement um, through to, you know, the movement to end apartheid has its root in this kind of sentiment, right? Uh, if they're choosing to locate the roots of their unhappiness in something like anti-Semitism or racism uh, or feminism, that's much more problematic. Immigrants right? and colleges. God, this is like the second time in this podcast where I feel like something I've said has been made to sound reactionary. Uh, no, no, <laughs> I, I don't think you feel that way. I'm just saying that I think Eric is right that it's it's problematic to sit there and just say the solution to your problem is. I agree. Dead. I agree. But like, but like, l l l let me let me try to hedge a little bit because I think really what I mean is. I was just is, riffing and trying to. No, 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 no. I question. know. <laughs> no, no, but I agree. I mean, I think it's an important point, but but I also. You know, I mean, we're all—all all four of us here—are sympathetic to psychoanalytic theory, and I just—and yeah. I, I wonder, you know, don't, don't don't we think, like, as all of us being sympathetic, that like we all must be somewhat convinced that like our relationship growing up has a huge impact on our on our on our psyche later on. Oh yeah. Like 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 so like, I'm not saying that it's our fault, but I'm just saying like if we start to just blame everything on uh, on like on external forces, like as unjust. I mean, I think we should condemn external forces because they're unjust not because they're making me uh like psychologically unhappy just because they're an unjust arrangement based on whatever judgment we use but you know i think there's like what I, you know there's if we if we're sympathetic to psychoanalytic theory i mean surely you know there's there's reason to think about uh you know our relationship with our parents and all these things that happened before and i think it can be plausibly convenient to to not want to look at that and just be like, well, let's look at capitalism. That's why I'm so unhappy. Oh, oh Victor, you. of course, I agree with you. Of if course. If we're yeah. saying psychoanalysis in that frame, it never ends with your relationship with your parents. That's true. That's where of it course, starts. Yeah. That's where you develop the patterns. That's where you signify certain things as, as above others or lower than others or more consistently than others or not. But re-signifying in that case, like whatever, if you want to translate it into weird reactionary politics that's mostly a choice that can be changed that's a it's a it's following a pattern but the pattern is signifying in a way that can be changed not a way that's immutable yeah right. i just i jump to the the other side immediately too fast because you're right yeah there's there's an amazing amount of insight to be had in like looking to the unconscious yeah. for reasons why unhappiness and all these other sorts of sorts of neurotic things that are going on but also the only reason is i just don't want to give in also to the opposite which is psychologizing unhappiness pathologizing yeah. unhappiness too quickly as well because that's again sorry i'm i'm fresh off of century of the self so i have all these problems with it but what like despite the insight psychoanalysis tends to say you know 
if you're unhappy with your boss, if you're unhappy with capitalism, if something's pissing you off about the way that person treated you at the store, what it really has to do with is your life growing up. You don't hate capitalism, you hate your father. And it tries to always locate and psychologize, like I said, these problems within that, when you say mummy, daddy, me triangle, Mm -hmm. it tries to triangulate all your problems and pathologize them and make it seem like it's a result of your unique setup of drives and uh, compartments of the psyche, but it's not always the case. And I think, you know, mid-century and later psychoanalysis started to think this way as Marcuse saying, you know, it's not, everything can't be related back to that childhood experience that structures maybe the rest of your life, but it doesn't determine it such that all sort forms of discontent can just be related back to it. Exactly. I want to start off by just And saying, we finish on anti-Oedipus, or almost finish. Sorry, uh, Matt. I, no, no, I did want to say that uh, I feel really resentful that Victor is saying that I can't blame myself for all my problems. As a Reformed Roman Catholic, <laughs> not only am I going to blame myself for my problems, I feel like I should be blaming myself for your problems and Eric's problems, and I'll fucking bear them all, like that cross that I was told I should be <laughs> I just want to say, I think that Fromm is really right about this, right? And he has problems, there's serious problems with this site in a second one I like take, but I usually use him and Zizek as models for what a kind of emancipatory and political psychoanalysis can be, right? Because one of the things that he says is like, there's no doubt that the roots of a huge amount of our traumas lie in childhood, right? Either we have bad parents uh, and we long for a sense of order uh, that you know, could have been provided if we actually had good ones. Uh, or we have parents that are too stern, in which case that we grow up with this sense that we're never good enough, uh, that everything is going to be inadequate, and so on and so forth, right? But he says, this doesn't really become problematic until we become adults and we start to invest ourselves in political projects that are designed to mollify these feelings, right? Uh, and one of the things that he points out about uh, fascists is a lot of them grew up with this deep anxiety that the world is disordered, right? Uh, and that the reason it's disordered is because people just aren't strong enough uh, to impose order on it. Uh, and so what's needed is precisely a paternal father figure who's going to come in uh, and set things right by taking away all the dangerous forms of freedom and individuality that they see in their society. And of course, that's one of the psychoanalytic appeals, uh, sorry, psychoanalytic explanations for the appeal of fascism, right? Uh, and I think that's where you make the connection, right? You know, yes, you know, these might be problems in youth, and maybe we can look it back there, uh, but it definitely has bearing later on when we're trying to see how, about why people invest themselves in certain kinds of political projects. Uh, and what we want to do is direct them, uh, if they do have these kinds of problems, towards healthier uh, kinds of political resolutions to their difficulties, right? Yeah, that's good. I mean, I think I think ultimately what we've come to is, uh, you know, we have to hold uh, like two truths at the same time, partially, right? About... Um, the causes of various things or multiple truths, which should be the, our job as academic thinkers. True, true, two truths, one cup, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, does everybody feel uh, pretty, again, Happy? what's the verb? Catharsized? Catharsized? Catharsized. 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 I just want to clarify that you shouldn't go yell at anyone working in a grocery store <laughs> or a bank or anything. I was being sarcastic. I, don't I think everyone got that, man. Eric is telling you that if you have a problem, just just take it out on the person who's one rung below the social hierarchy than you. (laughs) I just want to take it out on the the fucking cashier. Do not yell at them. Do not storm the Capitol. (laughs) Also, don't kill yourself, please. Do not constructive ways of dealing with your problems. 
Anyway, speaking of others not making me happy, uh, you guys want to play some Axis and Allies? Right now? Yeah. Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, of course I want to play. I can't wait. I called Germany. Uh, so we're catharticized with our catheters. Catheritized. Uh, <laughs> catheritized. Everybody good? <laughs> All right. Your dick. I'll see you guys next week. See ya. Hey, nice. Eric, if you're, if you're free, you should come talk to me about Adam Curtis on my stream on Friday. Oh, yeah. All right. I'm down. <laughs> <laughs>